Yes, sir. Uh, today's speaker, he's been here before, and he actually is Mark Spence, really, boss, I would think, right? You probably enjoy that. <laughs> Amen. They've been friends for 14 years, ever since that ministry started, just about, with Ray Comfort there, and um, just a, a, a beautiful ministry to the Church of Jesus Christ to help us get inspired and equipped to share the gospel and fulfill our calling to take the gospel into all the earth. And Santa Rosa counts as part of the earth. Amen? Amen. <laughs> what I wanted to say is, like Mark Spence, these guys, Easy and Rachel, his lovely wife Rachel is here. Uh, always a nice touch to bring the wives and, and uh, the they also have five children. Five children. I mean, I mean, I guess there's some kind of competition you've got going on with, the, uh, with Mark. But uh, praise the Lord. Well, extra prayers for Rachel with those five kids. And one of them's almost 20. But you're going to tell us more about that. Travel the world, 30-plus countries, probably a lot more than that. And uh, just sharing the gospel, dynamic communicator. He's been here before. Let's welcome him back. Brother Easy. Thank you so much. All right, brother. Thanks. Wow. Thank you all so much for that very warm welcome. And Pastor Ross, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. It almost makes me want to ask myself for my own autograph. <laughs> you know, hug myself, shake my own hand. As you heard, I had the privilege of being here last year, and what a joy it was to share the Word of God with you all. And I was blessed to be put up at the Honor Mansion. Stephen Kathy and the church here put me up, and it was such a blessing. But I don't know how many of you know this, but the Honor Mansion is, is actually officially rated as the 11th most romantic hotel in the world. And I was there last year without my wife. As Pastor Ross told me earlier, that's considered cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> so this year, I brought my beautiful wife, Rachel, with me. And actually, yeah, welcome her. Thank you. My way better half. <laughs> and uh, actually, in April, Rachel and I will be celebrating 21 years of marriage. And uh, praise the Lord. And I so praise God that back in 1995, she proposed to me. Hi, honey. I think I'm sleeping at the Honor Mansion couch tonight. <laughs> but you know, I do have to tell you this. I do have to tell you this. So as some of you may have guessed or may have been told, uh, Rachel is Ray Comfort's daughter, okay? So you can imagine, right, how nervous I was when I went to ask Ray if I can start courting his daughter, right? Uh, so I go in and I'm nervous and I'm shaking and, and finally I get it all out and he looks at me and in his New Zealand accent, he goes, Praise the Lord, that's the best news I've heard since the resurrection. <laughs> so I've had a really hard time staying humble since then. Pray for me. <laughs> what a treat it was for you all to hear Mark Spence speak here last week. As Pastor Ross mentioned, Mark Spence and I have been friends for a long time. We've pastored together before. We've been at Living Waters together for 14 years. And I got to go on the website and listen to the message that Mark shared with you all. And I have to be honest with you, that is probably the best message I have ever written for Mark Spence. <laughs> the guy owes me a hundred bucks. Well, listen, before we jump into the word together this morning, I just want to remind you of the importance of being a people who are ready and willing to submit ourselves to the truth of God. You know, this is routine for us, right? Every Sunday we come to church, we sit down, we open our Bibles, we listen to the word. But sometimes there are certain things that we hear that clash with our own preconceived ideas. Sometimes they clash with our own man-made traditions and we have a hard time yielding to them. We are convinced in our minds that we know better. The one thing you don't ever wanna do in life is find yourself arguing with God, right? Because like men arguing with their wives, you're always gonna be wrong. 
always. And so yield to the word of God. I remember years ago, we were driving through town with our kids when my daughter, Julia, who was about two and a half at the time, had an epiphany in her car seat in the back of our minivan. And suddenly we hear, mama, papa. We were teaching the alphabet and had a, you know, spell back then and stuff, just kind of the basic stages. But she goes, mama, papa, Jesus, you spell Jesus with a G. I thought, wow, chip off the old block, you know? I thought, you know, that's actually pretty intelligent because she's just kind of making logical sense and G, Jesus. You know, I go, sweetheart, that is so smart. But you know what? You actually spell Jesus with a J. She goes, no, 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 Papa, listen. Jesus. You spell Jesus with a G. I go, oh, honey, again, that is so brilliant. I'm so proud of you. But you know what? Mama and Papa really understand these things pretty well. So you have to trust me. You spell Jesus with a J. Then we hear that dreaded silence followed by, "Ah! sweetheart, what's the matter? You and mama don't understand how to spell. (laughs) She's almost 20 now and not much has changed. (laughs) But you know, we don't wanna find ourselves doing that with the Lord, thinking that we know better, thinking God doesn't understand. Let's yield ourselves to his word this morning and let's leave no matter what our preconceived ideas were determined to yield and submit to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Okay. Let's come before him and prepare our hearts. Father, thank you that this morning we get to hear your word. I pray that you allow us Lord to be revolutionized and transformed by it, that we would be so excited to uh, be doers of it as we leave this place. So I yield my tongue and my heart and my mind to you. Use me as a vessel of honor for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. One of my favorite words in the English language is the word bliss. Bliss. The word bliss carries with it the idea of ecstasy or euphoria or rapture or delight. And I have never known more bliss than the bliss that I knew when Jesus Christ invaded my life and transformed me through his gospel. And those of you in here who have been saved by the gospel, especially those of you who had a conversion as dramatic as mine, you understand what walking and living in bliss is all about. I'd like to take you back on a journey through time. It was January of 1991. I was four and a half years old when I suddenly found myself being snatched out of bed, thrown into the back of a car, and driven through the crazy streets of Beirut, Lebanon. Only to then be thrown on this giant metal tube called an airplane and flown thousands of miles to this new and wonderfully strange world called the United States of America. And back when you're at that age, you know, you don't have much say in the matter anyway. They don't even treat you like a human being yet. You're more like glorified luggage. (laughs) They just kind of toss you here and there. And and so there I was, little Emile Wayne, four and a half years old, walking off the plane, this strange new world. I'm getting assaulted by all these new sights and sounds and smells. And, you know, and I'm just kind of waddling off the plane. My eyeballs were as huge as they are now, but my body was this big. So I was like two eyeballs on feet, just kind of waddling around, (laughs) you know, little Arab gremlin. pretty funny. <laughs> and uh, shortly after arriving to the United States, my parents put me in this very uh, dangerous, hostile, and murderous environment called kindergarten. <laughs> and I didn't speak a lick of English, you know. I mean, I, the only thing is I know how to say were hello and give me chocolate, you know. <laughs> and so so I, I'm going into this new environment, you know, and I'm walking around and I'm like, what is this all about? You know, I go into the cafeteria, I'm expecting some hummus and falafel and they give me this thing called a sloppy Joe. (laughs) Give me chocolate, you know? And uh, kids are coming up to me, you know, speaking English to me. I'm looking at them, I'm like, no, it doesn't sound like that. (laughs) Actually, it sounds exactly like that. And you know, shortly after arriving to the United States of America, it didn't take me long to really put my sinful nature on overdrive. I mean, if there was any doubt that kids were born with a sinful nature, I was living proof. I was the poster boy 
for the sinful nature. Getting into fights, stealing from kids' little cubby holes, impersonating a cup scout and collecting money for charity, aka my candy fund. Yeah, I did it all. And uh, I hit high school, and that's when things really, really went down the drain. I kind of thought I was cool back then. Believe it or not, I was a rap artist. I know it's hard to believe. Pastor Ross was one of my backup dancers. (laughs) Carlin was our beatboxer. We were quite the trio back then. But I just kicked my sinful nature into overdrive. And before I knew it, before I had turned 16, I had already been kicked out of two high schools. I had become a gang member with the Crips, and I attempted to commit suicide in front of my own family. But on a divine August evening in 1991, God reached down his hand in the time and space, grabbed a hold of the heart of this wretched sinner, opened my eyes to the truth of the gospel, and radically transformed my life. And so, brothers and sisters, when I speak of bliss, I speak of bliss. Back in that time after Christ redeemed me and opened my eyes and saved me, man, I was walking on water, floating on the clouds, glowing in the dark because I went from darkness to light. I went from being blind to having my eyes open. I went from lostness to understanding the truth of God. And it was amazing. But after walking with the Lord for a little bit of time, it didn't take me long to remember that I still had the sinful nature, that I was still living in the midst of a sinful fallen world. And I'm a sinful fallen man that, that I have struggles and I have trials and I have temptations and, and I deal with all the other just practical, normal stuff of life, like busyness and tiredness and, and exhaustion and weariness and pain. And at the same time, I I started to realize that that I also live in a very Christianized world. It's hard for us really to recognize that in the United States. We're so immune to it. It's kind of like a fish not realizing it's wet because you're immersed in it. But I've been to 31 countries now around the world. And let me tell you, compared to elsewhere, we are very Christianized here. We go to our Christian Bible studies, hang out with our Christian friends, read our Christian books, listen to our Christian music, watch our Christian movies, wear our Christian clothing, don our Christian accessories. Some of us, believe it or not, eat our Christian breath mints. Oh yes, they have them. I know there are definitely some saints that can use sanctification in the oral hygiene department, but Christian breath mints? Lifesaver, brother? Oh, no, I only do soul savers. (laughs) What's next? Christian deodorant? Forget Old Spice. It's new creation spice. (laughs) Frankincense and myrrh scented, you know? (laughs) Wouldn't surprise me one bit. But, you know, the problem is, is when you take the reality that we are fallen, sinful people who deal with temptation and struggle and trial and and all the other difficulties of life and the the busyness and the exhaustion and the pain and the weariness. And you combine that with the fact that we live in a very Christianized world. And as Christians, we're constantly involved in Christian activities. What ends up happening is we continue to involve ourselves in a bunch of Christian things, sometimes even ministry, sometimes even outreach, dealing with the lives of people made in the image of God, the, the, the tricky business of dealing with souls. We find ourselves doing all of that, involved in all of that without having the right Christian heart and attitude. And nothing, nothing in the world could be more tragic than a Christian who is doing Christian things and involving themselves with people, especially unbelievers, and not having the right Christian heart an attitude. And I found what ends up happening in that regard is we end up casting off or jettisoning a bunch of important attributes that should mark us as the people of God. Things that people should be able to look at and identify in us as disciples and followers of Jesus. And I found that the most outstanding of the attributes that should mark us that is most often cast off is the attribute of compassion. Compassion. 
if there's anything that Christians should be known by, if there's anything that the world should recognize in us immediately, and when they think of Christians, they should immediately associate with, it is compassion, compassion. But oftentimes we don't see that in our lives because we're weak, sinful, struggling sinners who are busy and tired and exhausted. And so we throw ourselves into engaging in people's lives, forgetting we're ambassadors of Jesus, forgetting his model for us and how we should live. And we cast aside compassion. I want us this morning to take a look at an example in the life of Jesus and his disciples as Jesus models for us how in the midst of busyness, in the midst of tiredness, in the midst of exhaustion and all the things of life, we can still be a people who have compassion. And I love the fact that God never left us high and dry as his people. He never calls us to something that he doesn't give us instructions in his word of how to live out, but that he also gives us instruction by his example of how to fulfill. And so for that, let's take a look at Mark chapter six, beginning in verse 30. Mark 6, verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them. If you are anything like me, then you understand when you grew up in the 80s that we had very little by way of reality television. We poor, deprived souls had to simply handle all of the scripted programming that we were given. And so we had dramas like A-Team and Magnum P.I. and Charlie's Angels and Dukes of Hazard. right? You can hear the theme songs going through your head, just the good old boys, you know, just going through your heads right now, tormented by them. We had sitcoms like Happy Days and Different Strokes and Saved by the Bell and Growing Pains. Growing Pains. I mean, how weird is that for me, right? Growing up in the 80s, Kirk Cameron, worldwide celebrity, seeing his poster on every girl's wall in the entire universe. And next thing I know, I'm in ministry with the guy, right? I mean, you've seen our television program, The Way the Master, and Kirk's a great friend. We've traveled all across the country together. And it was the weirdest thing in the world to be speaking at Christian conferences and then being introduced by Mike Seaver. <laughs> I'm like, Lord, thank you. It's not Stephen Urkel. <laughs> Did I do that? You know, this. one year, I have to tell you the story. One year we were out of state speaking at one of our conferences and Kirk's new movie, Fireproof, was just released. How many of you here have seen Fireproof, right? I mean, awesome movie, huge movie. So we're at the conference, we're speaking. Kirk goes, hey, I want to go into a theater uh, where... Uh, Fireproof is playing and I want to kind of sneak in so no one sees me. And I just want to be able to sit there and monitor how the audience is reacting to different parts. So there happened to be someone that knew a manager of a theater and we arranged it all, went in. The movie had started, the lights were dim. And so we snuck in and we're sitting there and I'm, I'm sitting there in this theater and I'm watching Kirk Cameron crying on the screen while sitting next to Kirk Cameron, who was crying while he was watching Kirk Cameron crying on the screen. <laughs> Doesn't get much stranger than that, folks. And so, like I said, we didn't have very much by way of reality television back in the 80s, but in the year 2000, there was a huge major mega shift in television programming. When the first reality television programs hit the airwaves, programs uh, like uh, Big Brother and The Bachelor and Survivor. And all of a sudden, television executives recognized that they had hit on something huge. They recognized that there was a huge appetite in the American public for reality television. And from that point on, that's all we've ever really seen on TV anymore. And the, and the main part of things, it's because people love to see things as they are. They wanna see people with their hair down, with their feet up, with their makeup off. They wanna see people raw and real. And this passage here in Mark 6, my brothers and sisters, is a reality television type moment in the life of Jesus 
and his disciples. We see them sitting there and suddenly the cameras just come upon them, the lights turn on and there they are. And we see how they react in the midst of the situation. And we see how Jesus, their leader, their head, their perfect example reacted in the situation. It's easy for us to read a passage like this and just take it at face value. You might say, what's the big deal? Jesus and his disciples were hanging out and this crowd comes and Jesus stands up and he looks at them and he moves with compassion and then he begins to teach them. But I assure you that there is much more than meets the eye. We have to get the context so that we can truly understand the significance of the compassion of Christ. And Verse six, we're told, and he called the 12 to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. Then in uh, verses 12 and 13, it says, so they went out and preached that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And then we're told in Matthew nine that Jesus was participating in the same activities that his disciples were participating in. So Jesus and the disciples weren't just sitting around and the cameras popped up on them and it was just a normal day. Jesus had just sent his disciples out on this very grueling missionary journey. They were out preaching the gospel. They were going and casting out demons. They were healing the sick. I heard a team of you just came back from Nepal and you understand how taxing ministry is. As a pastor, I know that Pastor Ross can relate to the fact that it's not just getting up here on Sunday morning and preaching a sermon. In fact, they say preaching a one hour sermon is equal to eight hours of physical labor. So being out there and ministering to people and giving your life is a lot, but can you imagine you're out there not only preaching the gospel, but you're dealing with demonic activity, casting out demons from people. That's an ugly affair. You're also coming to people that are broken and, 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 and despondent because they're racked with pain and you're praying over them and healing them. It's, it's exhausting, it's taxing. And on top of that, to give you further context, in chapters, chapter six, verses 27 and 29, it tells us that John the Baptist, who was Jesus' relative and the apostles and disciples' beloved friend, had just been brutally murdered. Remember John the Baptist would always speak the truth to Herod who had married his brother's wife. And he told him that he needed to repent of that. Of course, she wasn't really happy with that. So one day her daughter Herodias was dancing before Herod and his guests for his birthday party. He was pleased with that, told her, I'll give you whatever you want up to half of my kingdom. So she runs off to mommy dearest, mommy, what should I ask for? And mommy knew the perfect thing. I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So she made the request, the executioner was sent and John the Baptist was brutally murdered. So that's the context in the midst of which we find Jesus and the disciples in our text here in Mark chapter six. Jesus just finished an intense missionary journey with his disciples. They were preaching the gospel. They were casting out demons. They were healing the sick. John the Baptist, Jesus' beloved relative, was just brutally murdered. People were coming to them, it says, from everywhere that they didn't even have time to eat. They got away to try to rest and all of a sudden, 5,000 people show up on their doorstep. And in the midst of that busyness and exhaustion and tiredness, because Jesus was as much man as we are with the exception of the sinful nature. We forget that sometimes. We focus so much on the deity of Christ that we forget that yes, he was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. Jesus dealt with tiredness. He dealt with exhaustion. He dealt with weariness. He dealt with sorrow and mourning. And in the midst of all of that, Jesus stood to his feet, looked out upon this crowd, and it says he was moved with compassion. He didn't just have compassion, he was moved. It speaks of something deep and gripping. He was moved with compassion. Now, it's hard for us sometimes when we read accounts like this to connect because we haven't experienced things that are specifically like this. But I want you to try to put yourself in Jesus' shoes in this instance, if you would. Imagine in your own life, you just had the toughest week of your life. You've worked 80, 90 hours, encountering all kinds of difficult things. You're worn out, you're exhausted. You're on the brink of a nervous breakdown. On top of that, one of your closest and dearest relatives just passed away and didn't just passed away, but died a gruesome and harrowing death. I mean, something that was beyond description. 
Your boss comes up out of compassion, says, look, I have bought you an all expense paid trip to Hawaii. Get on a plane and get out of here. You hop on the plane, you get out of there. You get to Hawaii, you walk into your hotel room, you put on that nice robe, the fluffy slippers. You're about to start popping some bonbons when you hear on your front door. You open it up and there standing before you are 5,000 of your wonderful clients, all smiling at you like a big group of Cheshire cats. <laughs> Aloha, right? I don't think my, my personal account would have read, and easy was moved with compassion. I think my account would have read, and easy was moved with murderous rage. <laughs> but not Jesus. Not Jesus. Yeah, he was busy. Yeah, he was exhausted. Yeah, he was tired. He was in pain. He was mourning. And he was involved in a bunch of ministry activity. But in the midst of that, he was not deterred from looking out and seeing this crowd and understanding who they were and being moved with compassion for them. Jesus is our example. Jesus is our model for how we are called to live as a people of God. And Matthew 9, 35 through 38, which is a parallel account gives us greater insight into the details of what exactly happened. Let's look at that together. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. Listen, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus was moved with compassion because, because why? Because he looked out on this multitude and he saw them as they truly were. Not necessarily how they displayed themselves, not necessarily how they cast their persona according to their own desires, but as they truly were. It says he looked at them and he saw them as weary and scattered. The word weary means distressed. It carries with it the idea of being flayed or torn or mangled. The word scattered gives us an idea of someone who is so worn out so weary, so exhausted that they have cast themselves down on the ground because they're just so wiped out and spent. It's hard for us, isn't it, when we live in the midst of a sinful world to look around at people who are involved in gross sin and immorality and wickedness and rebellion and blasphemy against God or, or are just blind to God or oblivious to God or ignorant of God. It's hard for us to look at them and see them like that. In fact, sometimes they don't look like that. We see them in the form of the Hollywood celebrity who has it all. We see them in the form of the, the tough guy who's, who's involved in all kinds of brutality. We see it maybe in the nice neighbor down the street. We don't look at these people as weary and scattered, as torn and flayed and mangled and cast down from exhaustion. But oh, if you can pry open their chest and look into their soul and see their spirit. I often say, if our insides were our outsides, you'd have a whole lot less smokers in the world today. If your lungs were hanging on your chest and you could see them black, you would, you would see a lot less smokers. But because we don't see the inner man, we don't see the spirit of man, we don't understand the, the situation and the predicament of men and women. They are flayed, they are torn, they are rent, they are cast down from exhaustion. Why? Because they are held captive by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works and the sons of disobedience, because they are slaves to their own sinful nature. And they are torn up as they're trying to make their way through the maze of life, and they have no idea of how to do it, out at sea without a compass. And Jesus looked and he saw them in this condition. He saw them as they were, and he understood that these people were lost. It says he saw them like those who were sheep without a shepherd. What, what a way to put it. Sheep without a shepherd. Can you imagine sheep without a shepherd? Do you ever hear of wild sheep? 
Yeah, we went hunting some wild sheep <laughs> this weekend. No, sheep by nature are dependent upon a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd are hopeless and helpless. What's a shepherd do for his sheep? A shepherd, first of all, guides his sheep. He leads them in the right direction. He makes sure as he guides them to the pastures to avoid those dangerous, deadly pits. He makes sure to keep them away from the edge of the perilous cliffs. A shepherd not only guides, but he provides for his sheep. He takes them to those pastures of green, sweet grass so they can be nourished. He takes them to those springs and those streams of cool flowing water so that they could be refreshed. He takes them to those spots of shade so they can rest and be revived. And a shepherd protects his sheep. He protects them from the ravenous wolves and the venomous vipers. Brothers and sisters, is that not what Jesus does for us? Does he not guide us through the maze of life, helping us to avoid the pitfalls of the folly of our own decisions? Does he not keep us from the edges of the perilous cliffs represented by our own selfish and fleshly and wicked desires? Does he not provide us with the wisdom of his precious word that keeps us from doing stupid and destructive and harmful things? Does he not protect us from Satan, that ravenous wolf, that one who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? Have we become too accustomed to having Jesus as our shepherd that we forget what it's like to be sheep without a shepherd, scattered and lost in the world, out at sea without a compass, dead and dying, torn and flayed and mangled and cast down from exhaustion. Do we forget? Jesus didn't. He didn't forget the nature of man and the plight of man. Though everyone is responsible for their sin, no one has any excuse. That is still the real state of people. And Jesus looked at them and he was moved with compassion. And he says to his disciples, listen, the harvest is plentiful. In other words, this world is overflowing. It is bursting at the seams with what? With people who are flayed and torn and mangled and cast down from exhaustion and shepherdless, but what? The laborers are few. Those that will go out into their midst and be the hands and the feet and the voice of Jesus so that we can reach them with his love and with his compassion. Because brothers and sisters, that's what we're called to. Let's not forget the exhortation in 1 John 2, 6 which says, he who says he abides in him ought himself to also walk just as he walked. Did you hear that? He who says he abides in him, I'm a Christian. I'm a disciple of Christ. I'm a follower of the living God. He, that person should walk just as Jesus walked, following his example. Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. That should be our heart. Looking out at the multitudes and seeing them for who they truly are, not in what they portray, not in what kind of image they want us to see, but looking beyond what is visible into their spiritual man and seeing them in the state they are on the pathway to an eternal damnation because of their sins. Jesus had compassion. I love the definition of the word used here for compassion. It means to feel deeply or viscerally. It means to yearn, to have pity, a feeling of distress from the ills of others. It means to suffer with another, to have mercy, to alleviate the consequences of sin or suffering in the lives of others. It means to bear, to treat with gentleness. In other words, it means putting ourselves in people's shoes and walking in them for a few miles. That's compassion. I love that it doesn't just say, have this kind of fleeting feeling, but, but it, it deals with action. Yes, feelings are involved. And look, as Christians, we often talk about how important it is to be careful of our feelings, to not be led astray by our feelings. And it is important, but listen, we, we do have emotions and they were given to us by God and they can be used in a good way, especially when it comes to lost people. That we're not just these dead Christians that are void of emotion, but we can look at them. And as it says here in the definition, to feel deeply or viscerally, 
to look at people and to yearn that they come to know the Lord, to have pity on them, to have a feeling of distress from their ills. And I love this, to suffer with them, to suffer with them as if though we were them. That's what compassion conveys to have mercy on them, to alleviate their consequences of sin and suffering in their lives. It means I look at someone and I say, look, I don't wanna stand on the outside and preach to you. I wanna enter your world. I wanna touch you. I wanna reach you. I wanna walk alongside you through the difficulties and pains and struggles of life. C.S. Lewis gives us a good warning though. He says, it is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. <laughs> Amen, right? Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Wow. Wow, that's heavy. Wow, that's convicting. There's a preacher who says, if you can't say amen, say ouch. <laughs> ouch. Yeah, humanity with a capital H, generalizing. That's a scapegoat. That gets us out of things. That's a major excuse. And we do that, don't we? Oh, yes, I love them. I love those people. They are amongst the groups of people that I love. But, but do I love him? Do I love her? Do I love Cindy? Do I love Mandy? Do I love Tom? Do I love George? Do I love individual people enough to where they're not just a nameless face to me, that, that I don't just look at crowds with blurry vision like they're a big blob, but this crowd Jesus looked at, it was made up of individuals. The definition of a crowd is multiple individuals gathered as a group, but it's still individuals. Do we, do we make that excuse or are we entering people's lives intentionally, sacrificing our time, our desires, our tastes? Because there are people that are difficult to deal with sometimes. There are people that are difficult in personality and they're trying in their, in their attitudes and, and, and their immorality is repulsive to us as well. And it's hard for us to get there, but that wasn't the heart of Jesus. He went and he hung out with the sinners and the tax collectors and he was criticized for that. That's our calling. We're to go out into the highways and byways and enter the lives of people. And let me tell you, people know when you genuinely care about them. They know if they matter to you, if they're just a nameless face or just a notch on your evangelistic belt. I remember years ago when I was pastoring, there was a coffee shop that was located in the same strip mall right next to our church and bands would come and play throughout the week and Oftentimes the band members would go outside for a break to have a cigarette or get some fresh air. And one time as I was preparing for the service, going in and out of the sanctuary, I noticed that a group of people from our church were interacting with some band members that had come outside. And after coming and going a few times, I began to notice that their tone was conflicting with the compassionate tone that Jesus has called us to have as God's people. They were getting very defensive and they were getting very harsh with them. And so after some time I came and stood by on the, sidelines and I waited for a break in the conversation and I interjected myself. And I looked at these young men standing there and I, I said, guys, my friends here are just trying to share the truth with you. And I looked at one of them in particular, his name was Seth. I'll never forget him. And I said, Seth, I just want to let you know that I, I heard some of the things you're saying and I can tell you've really looked into some of this stuff. You've done your homework and I can't tell you how much I respect that. Good for you. Way to go. And then I began to share the gospel with them. I didn't mince any words. I didn't compromise. I talked about sin. I talked about the coming day of judgment, the wrath of God, their need to repent and get right with God. I shared with them the cross, the burial, resurrection of Christ, their need to get right with the Lord. But I looked at them with, with a heart of care and concern. I looked at them and thought, these are real individuals. And, and as I began to talk to them in this way, you saw them completely change. They went from their arms folded, you know, their faces scowled like this to their arms by their sides, at times even nodding in agreement at different parts of the conversation. And when I was done, I looked at that young man, Seth, who was really tuned in and paying attention. And I said, Seth, I just want to let you know that I shared these things with you today because I care about you, because I love you. And then he looked at me in a way that I will never forget. 
and said something to me that I will forever treasure in my heart. After telling him I shared those things with him because I loved him and cared for him, he looked at me and he said, I can tell. I can tell. And I remember walking away from that and saying, oh Lord, I never want any other evangelistic encounter that I ever to have to ever end in any other way than like that. Then for someone to look at me after I've shared the gospel with them, after I've shared the uncompromising truth with God with them, and that I walk away and they can look at me and say, that person really loved me. That person really cared for me. Because brothers and sisters, compassion can soften the most hardened of hearts. Compassion can break the biggest, thickest of walls. Compassion can take the most resistant people and make them the most open people by the spirit of God to the truth of the gospel. I wanna give you all a fly on the wall sort of experience right now in the remaining time we have together. I wanna allow you to sit in on an interaction I had via Facebook with a young man not long ago. I, like many of you, have a Facebook page. Back when I finally broke down and got one at Mark Spence's insistence, I'm his boss, as you heard, by the way. Almost fired him for that. <laughs> but anyway, I uh, ended up getting a Facebook page, and this was my first, my private one. I have a public one, but I had a private one, and and I got a you know bunch of friends on there. I've never sent a request to anyone. These were all requests I've received. So I had 5,000 friends. I hardly knew who anyone was. And one day I posted a uh, post about how important it is for us as Christians to stand up for truth and not compromise. This was in the midst of a, a lot of stories that were flying around in the news about Christians suffering repercussions because they were taking a stand for the truth and not compromising. And so I said, look, we need to take a stand. And this was specifically dealing with the issue of homosexuality. I said, we need to take a stand. We cannot compromise. However, it's important that we do it with love and with compassion and with mercy. And so I posted that. And as I began to read through my comments, I found one comment in particular that simply said, shame on you, shame on you. And not knowing who this person was, because again, I, I, I hardly knew who, anyone who was on my page, I ended up sending a private message to this individual. To protect his identity, I'm going to call him John. I said, John, greetings to you, my friend. I hope you're doing well. I noticed that you recently posted a response to one of my posts in which you said, shame on you. I wasn't sure if it was directed toward me or someone else who had made a comment. It would be great if you could possibly give me some clarification. If I said something to offend you, I would definitely want to know what it was so that I could hear your thoughts and think through it. Thank you so much and God bless you. And so I heard back from John. I have struggled with my sexuality since I could remember. Even at a young age, I felt a special affection for the same sex. You think you understand these things, but you have no idea how difficult a struggle and a life we live. You just like to talk and a lot. He was right about that. <laughs> I'm a child of God and I know the Lord as he knows me. You will never reach or save a homosexual, bi, transsexual, the way you're going. I'm a college student. I was saved years ago and studied the Bible then and now. I love all. Don't bother with preaching me a sermon. I know what you think and what you have to say about all this. As a human being to another, have compassion, understanding, and love for others who are not like you. There are millions of lives who need real love and help, not just another cookie-cutter Christian who knows it all. Wow. Pretty intense, right? It's obvious that I struck a nerve. It's obvious that John is very sensitive and being in the homosexual lifestyle, you can understand why. And so I responded. I said, John, thank you so much for your response. I really appreciate it. I will pray and think through what you said and will respond after that. Have a blessed night. And that's exactly what I did, my brothers and sisters. I went and I got alone with God because I recognized the significance of this opportunity that God had put before me and I did not want to blow it. This soul was too important. This issue was too significant. And I gave you the example of what happened with Seth and by God's grace, that was one of the times that I handled it in the way that I should have, but I've blown it so many times in the past with unbelievers. I've put my foot in my mouth time and time and time again. And so knowing my propensities, knowing my my 
tendencies to do that, I cried out to God. I said, Lord, I don't want to blow this. I want to represent your heart. I want to be Jesus to this young man. And so after seeking God and getting direction, I responded. I said, John, thank you so much for your patience on my reply. As I had mentioned, I really wanted to get, I give thought to what you had written and to also pray over it. I know that it may be hard for you to believe, but I really do care about you. I can't even begin to imagine how difficult your struggle has been and you have my deepest sympathy. If you were ever in harm's way and I happened to be present, I would readily take a bullet in your place. The Lord is witness to the sincerity of my heart in this regard. And you are right, I do talk a lot. (laughs) There are times I definitely end up regretting many of the things I say and wish I could take them back. Obviously, some of the things you've heard me say must have fallen short of true biblical love, kindness, and compassion. And for that, I humbly ask for your forgiveness. You are also right that I don't understand what you've been through or the struggles that you have had. I will honor your requests and not preach to you. However, I would like to share some videos with you from people who do understand your life and what you've been through. It's fully up to you if you want to watch these. If you don't, just simply ignore them. Here they are. And I gave him a few different videos from YouTube of men who were formerly homosexuals and that came out and surrendered their lives to Christ. I said, if you would ever like to dialogue about anything or need anything at all, please know that I would be honored to speak with you or serve you in any way I can. And if you are ever in the Los Angeles area, please come by Living Waters for a visit. I would love to give you a tour and treat you to lunch. Thank you so much for taking the time to respond and correspond with me. I'm very grateful for that. Your friend, easy. And so John responded. He said, easy, thank you for showing love and compassion. It means a lot. I've been in a roaring storm that started my first year of college. I came to Christ before starting school. I came out to friends and family during my first year because of my rebellion, even after being saved. I love the Lord. I know I have done wrong. And in this place and time, I don't know what to do. God has been with me and my family. He has done miracles in our family, which is why I know he is with me. I feel my spirit and his voice calling me. My life is full of sin and I don't know where to turn or what to do anymore. I feel like God has also been silent. I don't know what he wants me to do. I tried praying and asking for help, but due to my participation in sin, I don't think he is helping me. What can I do? I guess I know the answer to that. Thank you for caring. Sincerely, John. What a difference. He went from a heart that was hard, a heart that was attacking, a heart that had no desire to even listen to now pouring out his heart and opening up his life and sharing details with me about what he's been through. I was really moved. I was really touched by that. And so I responded. I said, John, I'm deeply touched by how open you've been with me. I realized that you didn't have to do that. I don't take that trust lightly. I've been praying for you since receiving your message and I will continue to intercede for you. And then I asked him for his email address saying that it was easier to communicate via email than Facebook. And he responded and said, thanks easy. My apologies for what I said. As I mentioned, life has been difficult and sometimes my flesh gets the best of me. You don't talk too much. Yes, (laughs) yes, vindication. (laughs) You don't talk too much. I was upset. You have a great ministry and the way you talk is good. I've seen you and Ray speak many times. I've never felt that you said something offensive. You're always respectful and kind. Have a great weekend too. I said, thank you, John. No worries at all. I fully understand that things have been very difficult for you. I'm so glad that we got to connect, my friend. I'm really looking forward to writing to you. Have a great weekend. And I was about to begin writing a letter to John in which I shared with him again, the truth without compromise, that homosexuality is a sin in the sight of God, that, that one cannot claim to love God, but love the world and be a friend of the world, but, but, but claim to be a friend of God and that he, that he needed to examine if he was truly saved. And I was gonna share the gospel with him with love and compassion. But I didn't get a chance to do that because before I could write that letter, John responded with this final letter to me. Thank you, Easy. I just wanna let you know I've gotten right with God and I'm running for his heart and everything. I don't wanna let go of him and fall into that lifestyle again. As much as my flesh would love it, I choose God. I've watched some of the videos you emailed me and they really ministered to me in a big way. So thank you and praise God for a new season in my life. How awesome is that?
My brothers and sisters, this is what compassion can do. When we take time in the midst of the craziness and the busyness and our struggles and our trials and all of that, and we pause to look into people's lives and hearts and give ourselves away, that's what happens. And I was blown away when later I went back to John's Facebook page and I saw he changed his profile picture to an image of the graphic from a movie that we had produced on homosexuality, right? I mean, how cool is that? This is what God can do when we allow our hearts to be poured out. And that's who we are called to be as Christians. Listen, Colossians 4, 5 through 6, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to respond to each one. Speech seasoned with salt, full of grace, being a person who maximizes our time with people on the outside. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, listen, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. Humility. These are the things that should mark us. Kindness, gentleness, patience, tenderness, humility. We need to bear the burdens of the world and following the example of Christ. I love this story. Shortly after coming to Christ, Sadhu Sundar, a Hindu convert to Christ, felt called to become a missionary to India. Late one afternoon, Sadhu was traveling on foot through the Himalayas with a Buddhist monk. It was bitterly cold and the wind felt like sharp blades slicing into Sadhu's skin. Night was approaching fast when the monk warned Sadhu that they were in danger of freezing to death if they did not reach their destination before darkness fell. Just as they were traversing a narrow path above a deep, a steep cliff, they heard a cry for help. Down the cliff lay a man fallen and badly hurt. The monk looked at Sadhu and said, do not stop. God has brought this man to this fate. He must work it out for himself. Then he quickly added while walking on, let us hurry on before we too perish. But Sadhu replied, God has sent me here to help this man. I cannot abandon him. The monk continued trudging off through the whirling snow while the missionary clambered down the steep embankment. The man's leg was broken and he could not walk. So Sadhu took his blanket and made a sling of it and tied the man on his back. Then bending under his burden, he began a body torturing climb. By the time he reached the narrow path again, he was drenched in perspiration. Doggedly, he made his way through the deepening snow and darkness. It was all he could do to follow the path but he persevered, though faint with fatigue and overheated from exertion. Finally, he saw ahead the lights from the shelter. Then for the first time, Sadhu stumbled and nearly fell, but not from weakness. He had stumbled over an object lying in the snow-covered road. Slowly as he bent down on one knee and brushed the snow off the object, it was the body of the monk frozen to death. Years later, a disciple of Sadhu asked him, what is life's most difficult task? Without hesitation, Sadhu replied, life's most difficult task is to have no burden to carry. Life's most difficult task is to have no burden to carry. Had that Buddhist monk helped carry that burden, then he would have reached the destination still alive, warmed by the exertion of love and care and compassion. And brothers and sisters, so long as we walk through this world completely oblivious that we are surrounded by people who are flayed and mangled and torn, by people that are shepherdless, by people that are lost and blind, and we don't enter their world with compassion, we too as Christians will become cold spiritually and will become ineffective for the Lord. Do we have the compassion of Christ? Do we look at the homeless man who's standing on the side of the road and instead of saying, oh, there he is again, that lazy guy, that guy doesn't wanna work, that guy is just a, a, a mooch, that guy, he's a scam artist just ripping people off. You know what, maybe that's true but can you see past that into his soul and see him as flayed and torn and mangled and exhausted and shepherdless and enter his world with love and compassion? You know what I do? I carry with me Subway 
gift cards wherever I go. I've spent hundreds of dollars and I, I keep these in my, in my wallet. Wherever I see a homeless person, they're two $5 gift cards. I'll give them $10. I'll say, hey, go get yourself a meal. I'll put my hand on them and touch them to show them I'm not disgusted by them or afraid of them. I'll put my arm around them at times and pray over them. I'll share the gospel of life with them. Do we have compassion? Do we, do we see the rich man and write him off because look at him, he thinks he's high and mighty. He thinks he's above everyone. He's so out of touch with the world, so forget him. Do you understand that the rich man is just as much in need of the gospel and of Christ as the homeless man on the side of the road? And sometimes they're even more blinded because they trust in their riches. Are we willing to enter their world and love them with the love of Christ, with compassion? What about the atheist? who's hard-hearted against God, who blasphemes the Lord, who, who seems so intimidating. Are we willing to enter their world? You know, Penn Gillette, the world-renowned magician and atheist who hates Christians, who despises God, who rips Bibles to shreds. One day he told a story on YouTube about a man who came to one of his shows and came up and gave him a little Gideon's Bible. And he went on and on about how so genuine this man was, how so sincere, how so touched he was. He was on the brink of tears sharing this. Even atheists can be touched by Christians. As I was in DC with Ray and Ray walked up to Pendulette and shared the gospel with him for 30 minutes. Yes, God can save even the atheists the homosexual, the transsexual, the transvestite, doesn't matter who. Listen, people have stories, they have wounds, they have pain. Yes, they're guilty. Yes, they're responsible. Yes, it's sin, but we are called to be like Jesus, who, by the way, saw that crowd that was before him in a much deeper way than we ever could have. Because remember, he knew all things. He didn't need anyone to bear with him anything concerning man, as John tells us. He knew all men and what was in men. So he saw them in their sinfulness that they displayed in front of him, but he also went deeper and saw their depraved, wicked, fallen hearts. And even in the midst of that, even in the midst of every sin committed that was committed against him personally that he knew, he still looked at them and saw them in the state that they were in. Flayed and torn and mangled and exhausted and shepherdless. Will we enter into people's lives with that kind of compassion and make our lives count for the glory of God. You remember the woman caught in adultery, how Jesus looked at her and said, I do not condemn you, go and sin no more. Do you remember the rich young ruler who was so caught up in his riches that he even rejected Jesus? He walked away sorrowful. He wasn't willing to give up his riches. It says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He loved him, a man who just turned away from him. He looked at him and he loved him. If not us, then who? If not now, then when? Brothers and sisters, the biggest killer of compassion is forgetfulness as to who we were and where we were. That's what causes pride. That's what keeps us from entering the lives of other people. We forget who we were and where we were. And we become high and mighty and arrogant. Remember what Ephesians 2, 1 and on tells us. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Listen, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, just as the others, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, have you been saved? Titus tells us the same thing in Titus 3, 3 through 5. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. We ourselves were also once, right? Let's not forget what we're told in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor thieves, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, and such were some of you. 
such were some of you. Oh, how we forget who we were and where we were. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, may we be so mindful of who we were and where we were that we want to reach others. You know, in 2 Peter, he gives what I call the recipe to godliness in chapter one. And he, he gives all these virtues that should mark the Christian. And then he says, he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten his purification from his old sins. In other words, he's forgotten the day that he was redeemed and saved. I try as much as I can on a regular basis to reflect back on the day that God saved me so I could remember who I was and where I was so that I could look at others and reach them with compassion. Let me close with this final story. It was a bitterly cold evening in Northern Virginia many years ago. The old man's beard was glazed by winter's frost as he waited for a ride across the river. He heard a brigade of men on horses coming around the bend. He let the first one pass him without any effort to get his attention. Then another passed by and another. Finally, the last rider neared and the old man caught the rider's eye and said, sir, would you mind giving an old man a ride to the other side? The rider said, sure thing, hop aboard. Seeing the old man unable to lift his half-frozen body under the horse, the horseman dismounted and helped the old man unto the horse. The horseman not only took the old man across the river to his destination, which was a few miles away, as they neared the man's home, the horseman was curious and he asked, sir, I noticed that you let several other riders pass by without making any effort to get a ride. Then I came up and you immediately asked me for a ride. I'm curious why on such a bitterly cold night that you would wait and ask the last rider, what if I had refused and left you there? The old man replied, I've been around these parts for some time. I reckon I know people pretty good. I looked into the eyes of the other riders and immediately saw there was no concern for my situation. It would have been useless even to ask them for a ride. But when I looked into your eyes, kindness and compassion were there. I knew that your gentle spirit would welcome the opportunity to help me in my time of need. Those heartwarming comments touched the horseman. I'm most grateful for what you have said, he told the old man. May I never get too busy in my life and in my own affairs that I fail to respond to the needs of others with kindness and compassion. With that, Thomas Jefferson turned his horse around and made his way back to the White House. Wow. Oh, my brothers and sisters, if a U.S. president had enough time and enough heart and enough care to look at an old man and be moved with compassion for him. How much more should we? May we never get too busy, never get too caught up in the affairs of our life and our exhaustion and our tiredness and our weariness and our pain to where we don't look out at this world and see them as those who are flayed and torn and mangled, as those that are cast down from exhaustion as those who are sheep without a shepherd. And may we enter their world following the example of Jesus and touch them for the glory of God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the honor and the privilege that you've given me in sharing it. I pray, oh God, that you would touch your people this morning and stir them to be doers. Remind them of your grace that, Lord, you've said to us to come boldly to your throne of grace, to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So help them to run, help them to run with passion, help them to run with joy and to call out to you knowing that you love them and wanna help them and strengthen them in this regard. Let them sit at your feet that they would become so familiar with the compassion of Jesus that it will ooze out of them naturally. And they will be a light for your glory throughout the world. I thank you, Lord, and commit them to you in Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Two beautiful messages back to back, dovetailing so beautifully put together by the Holy Spirit, just uh, reminding us what I love about your ministry and what your message. Just a beautiful, almost a supernatural way of balancing the problem at hand. How do we present the gospel? and not compromise the truth. Compassion and truth together.
in this day and age, man, you are going to get all compassion, all sugar, all sweetness, all acceptance. Without that other part, go your way and sin no more. The most important part, they're together. People often ask me, where do I start? I don't know how to start. Where do I begin? I don't talk to people about the Lord. Compassion. If you're really a believer and you really know that Jesus said, he who has the Son has life, he who doesn't have the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God remains upon them. If, believer, you really believe that over everybody and you're mindful of that, you've got to care. You've got to care. And just be sensitive along the day, co-workers or boss or postman and all over the place. There are people headed on a southbound train <laughs> forever. And if you have compassion, you'll find the way. It's the compassion. You care. And the caring will show you the way prompted by the Holy Spirit. You've got this because he's got this and he's in you by the Holy Spirit. So we're just going to accept that exhortation uh, again and let it stick with us more than 20 minutes. Amen. It's good until I get to lunchtime and somehow, you know, the waitress is there having a hard day. You know what you're going to do? You're going to be the kindest customer in the world, and you're going to let, well, you're not going to let her see you pray, but you're going to pray, and hopefully she sees you pray, and then you're going to leave the fattest tip you've ever left in your life, and she's going to make a connection. Kind, different kind of hearted people. A big fat tip. They prayed. Uh-huh. One more piece in the puzzle to help her get off of that catastrophe of a destiny. Amen? Yeah. Don't you just want to go do that? Let's do it. Let's go win the waitress today. <laughs> all right. Let's not all go to the same restaurant, though. <laughs> that would backfire. <laughs> all right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do. We care, God. You live in us. You, you plucked us out of uh, the gates of hell itself and put us on the path of life and filled us with goodness and took away all of our sins. Look, God, the least we could do is let you continue that work through us and in us that uh, others might see, be pointed to the direction of life. We commit ourselves to you, Lord, more than 20 minutes. Lord, let it be 20 years times 20 years, these truths, Lord, we pray. For your honor, for your glory, for the sake of those who are lost and flailed and scattered and exhausted and doomed without you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.